Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most remarkable relationships in American history. The relationship and correspondence between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Remarkable men, remarkable leaders, remarkable statesmen in their own right. But what a remarkable and really um, profoundly shaping friendship they had. Was it really a friendship? Was it <laughs> sometimes tense, sometimes uh, conflict? Uh, the, a very complex relationship between these two men, but fascinating historically, and I think has some important lessons for us today. We're going to be talking about that relationship with our old friend, Dr. Kara Rogers. Kara is professor of history here at Ashland University. Many of you know her. She's a frequent guest and a welcome guest on this podcast. She is an expert on the early republic. She has written deeply on Thomas Jefferson's views on race and slavery. She has taught on Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. She is a student of the American founders, of the American founding itself, and everything important and historically shaping about that era. She teaches in Ashbrook's Teaching American History seminars. She teaches in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. And she is um, a wonderful colleague and a great person to talk with about these two important men. Carl Rogers, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I feel so welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're friends. Yes. What about Thomas Jefferson and John Adams? I think that the, what I've studied, they seem like very different people. Yes. How did their friendship begin? Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, I would call them frenemies. They're, they're the original frenemies. <laughs> Wait, for some of our listeners who might not be of a certain age, they might not know what frenemies means. Uh, this is, in high school, your best friend who's sometimes also your worst enemy, your, your frenemy. Okay, yeah. okay. You would call them frenemies. Yeah. How did their frenemy relationship begin? Well, it began... <laughs> When, uh, when they were in Congress in 1775, uh, Jefferson was this young man from Virginia. John Adams was this elder statesman. Well, not elder, but, but older statesman from Massachusetts. Adams later on remembered and said, I'm going to quote him here, You should remember that Jefferson was but a boy to me. I was at least 10 years older than him in mm. age and more than 20 years older than him in politics. I am bold to say I was his preceptor in politics and taught him everything that has been good and solid in his whole political conduct. <laughs> so, so, so Adams is like his older brother? That's how Adams saw himself, as a mentor, as an instructor to this youth from Virginia. Maybe that's not how Jefferson would remember the situation. Um, but they, they started out in Congress together, and in Congress, Jefferson tended to be very quiet and withdrawn, and he just observed. But everybody knew that he was a great writer. And so hmm. Adams, uh, when Jefferson was put on this committee with Adams and uh, with three other men to write the Declaration of Independence, Adams insisted that Jefferson be the one to do the actual writing uh, because he knew that he was such a good 
um, author. And they also spent uh, a lot of time in Europe together. So they were together in France between uh -huh. 74 and 85. And they wrote that they went to one another's houses or Benjamin Franklin's house every day. Um, and, and became family with one another. So, so they got to know each other before America even declared independence. They're in the Second Continental Congress. Mm -hmm. And then after America declares independence, they're out, out in Europe working for America together. Mm, absolutely. Tell, tell us a little bit about that time when they're in the Second Continental Congress together and they're considering the momentous issue of whether or not America should declare independence. Did they both support independence? Did they have different views on that? What's kind of cemented their friendship there? Do you know what I think we, we tend to forget about those days um, is that this was a time of incredible danger, that in the lead up to declaring independence, a lot of people in that Continental Congress felt like they were about to sign their own death warrants. And they were all contemplating death. Right. We shall all hang together or we most assuredly shall hang separately. Exactly. Yeah. And so Jefferson and Adams both supported independence. And I think you could make an argument these are the two men who did the most to get us there. Adams hmm. by arguing strenuously for it and eloquently for it um, in these open sessions. And Jefferson working more behind the scenes and then being the draftsman of this incredible document that, hmm. that we now know as the Declaration. Well, that's fascinating to me because you, you said that Adams was out front taking the lead kind of publicly in the Congress, giving speeches and arguing, persuading. Jefferson, you said, quietly working behind the scenes. When I think of Thomas Jefferson, I don't think of a quiet man, because maybe because of his writing is so eloquent. Yeah. Were their personalities similar or different? <laughs> totally opposite personalities. Really? <laughs> totally opposite. Jefferson is tall and slender, and Adams is kind of shorter and more stocky. Adams is like a bulldog. He is just hmm. ferocious about the things that he believes in. He's passionate. He's this lawyer who loves to argue. Uh, and he described himself later, I'm going to quote him again, as obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular <laughs> in, in that Second Continental Congress. Uh, and Jefferson is this very sensitive, he had a lot of um, desire to get along with everybody, didn't, mm. didn't like it when people were mad at him, wanted to kind of avoid controversy whenever he could, he was more introverted, and he was very good at being so polite with people it, when he got in the same room with them, that even his enemies would say, oh, well, I, I warmed up to him after I was at his house for dinner. So Jefferson uh -huh. loves to get along with everybody, and Adams is, is recognized that he's just never going to be liked by everybody, and he's made his peace with that. So I know it's a little bit of a speculation, but with such different personalities, would these two guys have been friends without the revolution? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think they, they were totally opposite in temperament, in upbringing, in their loyalties to their different states, but the revolution threw them together in this incredible moment in human history when they knew that they were on the verge of doing something incredible. Hmm. If they succeeded and they lived, they yeah. had a chance to change the world. Wow. And this bonded them in, an, in a remarkable way. So their friendship then is forged sort of in the fire of revolution. Mm -hmm and continues after the revolutionary period into the 1780s mm -hmm. uh, with their work on behalf of the United States, as you said, abroad in Europe. Right. Um, the, but we know that their friendship became strained. Yeah. When did that start to happen? Well, we first see signs of this appearing around their discussions of the French Revolution. 
Okay. So For our listeners, what, what era is that? This revolution begins in 1789. By that point, um, Adams and his wife, Abigail, had moved to England um, to do um, diplomatic work there. Jefferson stayed in Paris, and so he got a lot more caught up in those early days of the revolution. He helped shape uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Man with, with Lafayette and other French revolutionary leaders. And Jefferson became incredibly optimistic about the French Revolution. He saw it as the American Revolution 2.0, uh-huh. uh, except now on an even bigger stage because France's population was many times the size of America's. And if the French could succeed in changing their government, having a, a constitutional monarchy or perhaps even a republic, it would truly show that humanity was capable of living by the consent of the governed and mm. not simply by the will of a king. So for Jefferson, the future of the world is wrapped up in the French Revolution, and Jefferson believed that all human beings are capable of moral progress, and therefore nations are capable of political progress. And that gave him this sense of optimism ah. and, and hope for the future of the French. Is that an optimism that Adams shared from his perch in England? Adams has the opposite view of human nature, I think. Or at least he's far enough away on the spectrum of views to, to be almost opposite to Jefferson. Adams thinks that human beings are uh, fundamentally flawed, and that nature of human corruption caused him to be a lot more pessimistic, particularly about what was going to happen with the French Revolution. He believed that the French were not prepared for liberty the same way the Americans had been. Uh-huh. And as their revolution became more radical, Adams became increasingly concerned about it. And this translated to Adams's views of the Americans. Because he was convinced that all human beings are flawed, he didn't want Americans to attempt too much with their new government. Uh-huh. And so in some of his writings, he suggested perhaps Americans would need a hereditary monarchy, hereditary aristocracy, or at least that those forms of government were preferable to elections. Completely the opposite of Jefferson's hopes for America's future. Oh, really? So, so with these different views, when did they first start arguing openly with one another? Well, the first crack happened by accident, the first real division line in their friendship. In 1791, Jefferson and Adams were both working for President George Washington. Uh, Jefferson was the Secretary of State, Adams was the Vice President, and Jefferson received a pamphlet from Europe. Uh, This was Thomas Paine's pamphlet, The Rights of Man. And this is Thomas Paine, also the author of Common Sense. This is right, yes. Okay. Yes. Now, common sense uh, was a unifying document for the Americans during the American Revolution, helped push them toward independence. Rights of man was a bit more controversial because, especially by this time, Paine was becoming identified with the French Revolution as a big supporter of it. Uh, A lot of more conservative Americans were concerned that maybe Paine was becoming too radical. Well, Jefferson likes... Payne's ideas, and Jefferson gets sent a copy of this pamphlet, and he sent it to a printer. He forwarded it, and he wrote a little cover note to the printer and said, here is something to be publicly said against the political heresies which have sprung up among us. And what Jefferson was referring to was a work by John Adams, the Discourses on Davila, that, that, um, oh. in which Adams praised hereditary aristocracy over elections. Now, Jefferson didn't mean for his note to get printed, but the oh. printer changed it into the kind of the endorsement. So it's the first thing that you see when you open the book. Here's Thomas Jefferson praising Thomas Paine's book and insulting 
John Adams. And Jefferson was horrified. He wrote immediately to George Washington and said, I didn't mean to do that. I know uh -huh. that you want, you want all of the members of your administration to be unified. I didn't mean to publicly call out John Adams. And eventually he tried to apologize to John Adams as well. He told Adams it took him about 12 different tries to figure out the right way to start the letter. And he finally decided to write, he said, because he had a conviction that truth between candid minds can never do harm. But apparently Jefferson was wrong about Too that. Too optimistic. Too optimistic, or maybe he and Adams weren't really being candid with one another. Jefferson tried to downplay the disagreement and say, I know that we really, we might have a disagreement, but we, we really respect one another and our differences should only be in private conversations. I didn't mean to publicly say this about you. Hmm. Adams wasn't quite satisfied by that apology because by that point, Jefferson's words had been reprinted and quoted all around the country. So to Jefferson, or to Adams rather, it felt personal and it felt public and, and Jefferson's apology wasn't convincing enough for him. So this is the first real division in, for them. What about for the rest of George Washington's term until 1796? Do they get along? Jefferson leaves the cabinet, am I right, to say that he resigns? Jefferson leaves the cabinet. He's really more in disagreement with uh, Alexander Hamilton, okay. who's a much more active participant in government. Um, so he and Adams managed to avoid more conflict for the rest of Washington's administration. But then that's 1791, as you said, the upcoming election of 1796, they run against each other. Yeah. Adams versus Jefferson. Yes. Did that election harm their friendship? Not too badly. Jefferson... Well, that's interesting. I, I would have thought it, it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would think so. And it, there was a funny uh, twist to our legal system at that point. When two candidates opposed one another, uh, whoever lost became the vice president. Oh, that's right. Of course. So wh whichever one of these men wins gets to be president, whichever one loses gets to be vice president. You'd think that this would be a real contest. But Jefferson said... If Adams wins, that's fine. And, and if there's a tie, it, it should go to Adams because Adams has seniority over me. Huh. And at this point, Abigail Adams even said, I'm going to quote her here, I have long known Mr. Jefferson and have ever entertained a friendship for him. He is a man of understanding and of probity. Between him and Mr. Adams, there has ever subsisted harmony. Though they have not accorded always in sentiment, they have dissented without warmth or ill will like gentlemen. And Mr. Jefferson, I have not a doubt, will support the president. So here's Abigail Adams. She was writing to her sister and she said, you know, I, Adams and Jefferson, yeah, they've disagreed, but they haven't done it passionately. They haven't done it with warmth or with ill will. They've disagreed politely. And Mr. Jefferson will support John Adams. As a gentleman would, as, as a she gentleman says. Would, absolutely. Well, so did that gentlemanly conduct continue through the Adams administration? Did Jefferson continue to support President Adams? Yeah, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> Abigail was wrong. Abigail <laughs> was wrong. And what happened? I think Abigail took it worse than John did, actually. Um, well, the, uh, the American political system became increasingly divided over those next four years uh, until the point where we had two first uh, American political parties. Jefferson became the leader of the opposition, the Democratic Republicans, and Adams, as president, of course, was the leader of the other party, the Federalist Party. And they had fundamentally different views of how America should be. So Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans are in favor of a more limited federal government. They want to lower taxes. They don't want to have a full-time standing army. 
Uh, and Jefferson argues on behalf of a natural aristocracy, meaning he wanted to increase education throughout America so that the smartest and most virtuous men could rise naturally into positions of leadership rather than having to rely on hmm. rich men or men with the right family connections. So how's that different from what Adams's view is? Adams uh, and the Federalist Party in general, and Adams kind of disagrees with the rest of his party, but the Federalists in general have b views that the country needs a large, strong, centralized government. They're not afraid that the country will turn into a monarchy or tyranny. They think, no, we need a strong executive and a strong central government. They wanted a national bank to be a powerful economic force in the country. They supported a standing army. Uh, and the Federalists and Adams as well leaned toward a hereditary aristocracy, or at least toward treating the wealthy men of the country as a separate class. Hmm. So different than Jefferson's view of a natural aristocracy. So were there any other events during that, during the Adams administration, which is from 1797 to about 1801 or so? Mm -hmm. um, are there other any events that happen that exacerbate these growing differences? Yeah, there's a lot of tensions between America and France. We were in a, an undeclared naval war, now called the Quasi-War. Uh, and because of these tensions with France, um, Americans became divided into those um, or had been divided into those who supported England and those who supported France because of this quasi-war uh, and the tensions with French immigrants coming in Adams became increasingly fearful that perhaps the French were going to attack and invade America hmm. perhaps there were going to be French immigrants coming over to um, act as insurgents from within and so he and his party uh, had a series of laws called the Alien and Sedition Acts that were designed to increase the power of the president so that he could deport foreigners that he deemed to be a threat to the country. And he also wanted to be able to stop Republicans from criticizing the Federalist government. Um, so several of Jefferson's supporters, people who were um, editors of Republican newspapers, were arrested, fined. Some of them were put in prison. And Jefferson took this partly personally, because it was an attempt to shut down freedom of speech for his party, but also viewed this as a massive step back for America in general, this country that had just established a Republican government based on all of these rights and freedoms. Now to have it so severely limited, um, he thought that perhaps Adams was being used by people like Hamilton and these other Federalists uh. to take the country toward a monarchy again, a, a restrictive shutting down freedoms monarchy. Well, I'm interested in the phrase that you used, that Adams was being used by people like Hamilton. As you said, there were the high Federalists who were really strong, <clears throat> strongly opposed to the Democratic Republicans. And then there's sort of uh, Adams, who's part of the Federalists, but not quite that extreme, one might say. Yeah. But, but even Jefferson thought, but he's being used. But then they run against each other again in 1800. Yeah. So there's this, the, they're passed, I think, in 1798, the Alien Sedition Acts, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got this rupture, open political rupture between the political parties. It's come, become very contentious. By the time we get to this next election of 1800 and they run against each other openly, were things, it seems like things would have been much more tense between them. Is that true? Yes. What, what happened during the election of 1800? 
Well, they didn't go on CNN and give interviews attacking one another, and they didn't have any public debates. Okay. So in that sense, <laughs> the election was quite different. Still the old-fashioned gentleman approach. Gentlemen's uh, campaigning, meaning you stay home, you say nothing, you pretend like you don't want to be elected. So was the campaign gentlemanly? <laughs> no, because all of their proxies get to go out in public and write nasty things about one another and just try to really terrify the American people that if the wrong person gets elected, the whole country is going to be destroyed. So, so what kind of things were said? Oh, I have great examples. The attack ads against Adams accused him of importing mistresses from Europe, <laughs> trying to arrange the marriage of one of his sons to English royalty. Uh, they called him blind, bald, and toothless, among <laughs> other insults that I will not repeat here. Uh, and the people who hated Jefferson said, well, if Jefferson gets elected, Rape, murder, adultery, and robbery would be openly practiced in the streets. Bibles would be burned. Babies would be killed on pikes. Um, wow. So this was a vicious, vicious election that really turned nasty and personal um, between these two men, even if they themselves were not saying these things. Each one of their feelings became hurt um, yeah. because they knew that the other man must have endorsed or supported or at least didn't stop their proxies from from getting so bitterly you really personal. have two parties then for the first time in american history in the election of 1800 it sounds like what you're saying that where each party says that if the other party takes over the country will actually be destroyed yeah like we will either turn into uh, monarchist englishmen right. or we will turn into crazy radical <laughs> jacobin frenchmen right and so the whole American Republic and what it stands for is at stake. Right. Jefferson wins the election. Barely. In a close, <laughs> close, contested. Close, right. And anyone who's ever seen the musical Hamilton yes. knows about all the chicanery that went on yeah. to, to get that. And in fact, in the end, rather than have Aaron Burr succeed to the presidency, the Federalists mm -hmm. throw their support behind Thomas Jefferson. At least Jefferson has principles. Even if they thought they were <laughs> Even if they terrible. don't agree with them, at least he has some. <laughs> so what was the handover of power like after such a contested election? Did, did Adams and, and Jefferson try to calm the tensions? Yeah, it's a great question. I think Adams could perhaps have done a better job. He hmm. left Washington before saying goodbye. He didn't attend the inauguration. He didn't even try to give the appearance of um, welcoming Jefferson to power. But... It's important to know that his one of his sons had recently passed away and that Adams was personally in mourning. He also, of course, was, was deeply wounded by the election itself. Um, and so maybe to him it didn't feel like a, an insult to leave D.C. without going to the inauguration. Jefferson, on the other hand, I think acted in a fairly gracious manner. He gave a very reassuring inaugural address. In this address, he has this beautiful line, we are all Federalists, we are all Republicans. Um, he talked about needing to uh, protect the rights of the minority, um, that hmm. even, even if you win an election in a landslide, you still have an obligation to, to protect the rights of the other people in the country, the minority party. So Jefferson gave every indication that he wasn't going to punish his enemies, and it did turn into a peaceful transfer of power, which is massively significant in the history of the world, that, that for the first time we have right. this contentious election, two parties attacking one another, and we managed to change hands from one party to another without breaking out into actual violence. But 
in the last few weeks of his presidency, John Adams was uh, charged by Congress uh, with, a, with a new law that created several new um, judicial positions, and Adams felt like it was his job to fill them. So mm. he appointed Federalist judges to these new federal judgeships. And Jefferson said that was really unfair. In fact, I'm going to quote Jefferson. He, he later on told Abigail Adams, I did consider his, John Adams, last appointments to office as personally unkind. They were from among my most ardent political enemies, from whom no faithful cooperation could ever be expected, and laid me under the embarrassment of acting through men whose views were to defeat mine or to encounter the odium of putting others in their places. In other words, Jefferson felt like Adams put him in a really tough position. Adams mm appointed all of these Federalist judges that Jefferson knew would be loyal to the old Federalist principles and would counter perhaps Jefferson's ideas as the new head of state. And and Jefferson unfortunately had to uh, deny a lot of these judges their jobs and it turned into a Right, I'm thinking of the famous court case. court case of Marbury versus Madison, exactly, right? Growing exactly. out of that exact controversy. Right. Now, the Adams, of course, felt like, what were they supposed to do? Of course, John is going to appoint judges to fill these roles, and he thought he was just appointing qualified people. That's the president's power under the Constitution. Exactly. Exactly yeah. right. Um, and so, really, what that was one of the big arguments that, that stayed with both of them. And then, of course, I think what really hurt them were these insults that had been hurled back and forth in the election that, that stopped them mm. from speaking. In fact, Jefferson and Adams didn't say anything to one another for 11 more years. Wow. So these guys who had been revolutionaries together, who had served the country overseas, who had worked, been together in the Washington administration, who had been together in the Adams administration, who knew each other very deeply, obviously, corresponded back and forth for about 25 years. They just stopped talking. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. So how in the world did they start speaking again? Well, in 1804, there looked like a potential for the ice melting a little bit. Uh, Jefferson's daughter died, and Abigail Adams wrote to express sympathy. Um, and Jefferson took it as, oh, maybe the Adamses are reaching out to me. They want to reconcile. This and, is while uh, Jefferson is president. This is while Jefferson's president. So Jefferson wrote back with a bit of an explanation for his, uh, for his behavior, kind of broached some political topics. Big mistake. Big mistake. I've, uh -oh. I've heard scholars say, actually, about the Jefferson-Abigail-Adams relationship that spouses become more offended and hurt on behalf of their significant other than the significant other does. So John might have been able to get over those political attack ads, but Abigail 
she had a much harder time forgiving Jefferson or believing him when he said, I wasn't, I didn't say those mean things about John Adams. Some of those things were said without my knowledge. Abigail had a really tough time accepting that. And so there's a series of letters back and forth. John never gets involved. Uh, and and they, the kind of friendship between Jefferson and Abigail is not restored. And they stop speaking as wow. well. Okay. So then for the next seven years after that, yep. John isn't speaking with Thomas Jefferson. Abigail presumably is not speaking with Thomas Jefferson. Silence. So there is radio silence mm -hmm. between them. How in the world then did they actually start speaking again? It's an amazing story. And there's a figure in this story that does not get nearly enough credit, uh, Benjamin Rush. So he is a founding father um, who's Papers were not public, publicized by his children or grandchildren. In fact, they were kind of kept in storage until the 1940s. Wow. So his story... So who's Benjamin Rush? Benjamin Rush. It, he's an amazingly important American founding father. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. In fact, he was part of the inspiration behind Thomas Paine's pamphlet that we mentioned a little bit ago, Common Sense, the pamphlet that helped uh, inspire Americans to declare independence. Benjamin Rush... Uh, collaborated with Payne on that pamphlet. Wow, okay. Right. Uh, and Benjamin Rush apparently is also one of the fathers of modern psychiatry. He was very interested in mental illness and alcohol addiction. Um, he was America's first um, teacher of other doctors. So he was trained as a physician at the University of Edinburgh and then trained the first 3,000 doctors to become doctors wow. in America. okay. So... Hugely influential in several different areas of American political and um, civic society, and also a good friend of both Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Oh, really? Okay. And Benjamin Rush, if I'm not mistaken, was in Philadelphia? He was, yes. He was a Pennsylvanian by birth. His father was a blacksmith, so he was throughout his life had to keep working as a doctor in order to support himself, Okay. but also... Um, very influentially. So literally, circles. I mean, he's friends with both and literally geographically in the middle, in the middle. Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> so how did Rush um, get these two guys to start talking again? I don't want to say he nagged them, but he was very consistently working behind the scenes, dropping hints, okay. encouraging them. In so sending them letters sending, or how? Absolutely. Are. He's writing to both of these men. He and, uh, and Jefferson had a lot of more political views in common. So, so Benjamin Rush was more of a Democratic Republican. Okay. And so Benjamin Rush had stopped speaking to John Adams for a while. Uh, they were able to reconcile. And from the moment that, that Benjamin Rush and John Adams were able to reconcile, they wrote letters back and forth for the rest of Rush's life. And Rush wrote things like, I'm going to quote him here. Uh, this is a letter that he wrote to Thomas Jefferson in 1811. Posterity will revere the friendships of two ex-presidents that were once opposed to one another. Human nature will be a gainer by it. In other words, Jefferson, if you and Adams can reconcile, future generations will look at this and learn something amazing. They will revere the fact that you are two presidents who were opposed to one another, the fact that if you are able to become friends again, you will teach something to, to future generations. You will improve human nature by giving us an example of reconciliation. So how did Adams and how did Jefferson respond to Rush's encouragement? <laughs> they both wrote back and forth to Rush and said things like, well, 
I, of course, have never really stopped caring for the other man, <laughs> okay. and really our disagreement wasn't that bad, and of course I would be open to talking to him again, but neither one of them was willing to take that first step. Uh-huh. It took years. In fact, it, it took not only years, but also uh, personal visits um, from, there was a, a couple of young men who were neighbors of Thomas Jefferson, uh, Edward and John Coles, and they went and traveled to John Adams's home, spent some time with him. John Adams started talking about how badly treated he had been by Thomas Jefferson, and these two young neighbors of Jefferson were able to say, but Mr. Adams, we've heard Jefferson talk about you, and he refers to you so lovingly and kindly. Wow. And Adams says, oh, I love Jefferson too. <laughs> so, and they were able to take that first hand back to Jefferson and say, Adam says he still loves you and he thinks fondly of you and reassure and build that personal connection. But one of the other really cool things that happened that that restored the friendship, Adams and Rush, when they wrote back and forth to one another, often they would describe their dreams. Hmm. And uh, when Jefferson left office in 1809, Adams wrote to Rush and he said, oh, Rush, I'd like you to take a nap and have a dream, please. Uh, For my instruction and edification, give me a character of Jefferson and his administration. In other words, almost like a joke. Adams is saying Mm. to Rush, take a nap, have a dream, tell me something profound about how to understand President Jefferson. Well, a few months later, Rush writes Adams a letter and says, I had a dream last night. In my dream, my son was reading a history book. And he showed me this history book, and here's what the history book said in the dream. In the month of November 1809, Mr. Adams addressed a short letter to his old friend, Mr. Jefferson, in which he congratulated him upon his escape to the shades of retirement and domestic happiness, and concluded it with assurances of his regard and good wishes for his welfare. This letter did great honor to Mr. Adams. (laughs) It discovered a magnanimity known only to great minds. Mr. Jefferson replied to this letter and reciprocated expressions of regard and esteem. Now remember, this is all still the dream that Rush is saying. He continues to say that in the dream, these two men wrote letters back and forth for several years in which they mutually reviewed the scenes of business in which they had been engaged and candidly acknowledged to each other all the errors of opinion and conduct into which they had fallen during the time they filled the same stations in public life, the service of their country. And then he says that in these dreams that have not yet been written, there would be many precious aphorisms, observations, profound reflections. Hmm. Um, And then the end of the dream was that these gentlemen sunk into the grave nearly at the same time, full of years and rich in the gratitude and praises of their country. Uh, And to their numerous merits and honors, posterity has added that they were rival friends. Frenemies, in other words, right? (laughs) Rival friends. That was the dream that Benjamin Rush had. And so he wrote all of this to John Adams, and Adams wrote back, and I'm going to quote it because it's beautiful, a dream again. I wish you would dream all day and all night, for one of your dreams puts me in a good mood for a month. I have no other objection to your dream, but that it is not history. It may be prophecy. Wow. So... Nothing happened for another few months. I was just going to ask, was it prophetic? (laughs) Almost. It was prophetic in almost every detail. Uh, Adams didn't write in November of 1809 the way that he had in the dream. It took until uh, New Year's 
1812. So it took until after the Coles brothers made their personal visit. It okay. took several more letters back and forth between Russian Adams and Russian Jefferson um, before finally Adams did reach out. But then he did almost exactly the way that Rush had dreamed it, just wrote a little short note. So it was Adams who wrote the first letter. He broke the ice. Bro wrote a first short little note, Happy New Year, uh, you know, hope you're well, think of you fondly. And Jefferson responded immediately. And what's interesting about their letters is that there's a lot of caution on Jefferson's part hmm. and a lot of typical honesty on Adams's part. Uh -huh. Adams is willing to just go for it and bring up controversial topics and express his hurt feelings and, and poke the bear, as you will, uh, hmm. say things that maybe will be offensive to Jefferson. And Jefferson is very careful not to defend himself or to try too hard to explain himself. I think he was determined not to get offended this time. And so he would redirect the conversation into more uh, neutral territory. Well, so how many letters? You said that Adam sent the first one there in the beginning of 1812. How many letters did they write over the course of the next, would have been about 14 years? Mm -hmm. 158 letters. Wow. Adams wrote three times as many as Jefferson did of those. But... It's not necessarily because Jefferson was um, lacking in their friendship or didn't want to be corresponding with Adams. It was because in 1820, Jefferson received 1,267 letters and he answered most of them. What? And by comparison, right, by comparison, Adams got 123 letters and wrote 121 back. So Jefferson was corresponding with people all over the world. He was this very popular president, the sage of Monticello in retirement. Just half of his life is, is taken up with correspondence. Uh, and Adams had a lot more free time. So Adams, ah, we hear okay. from a lot more. Yes. <laughs> so you said that Jefferson was determined to avoid controversy. Yeah. Uh, he didn't want to revive the hurt feelings he maybe didn't think they had gotten past that and didn't want their their burgeoning, rekindling friendship to rupture again. Yeah. So what did they talk about? <laughs> well, Adams has this great line to Jefferson. He says to him, you and I ought not to die before we have explained ourselves to each other. Hmm. I love that so much. They didn't necessarily feel a need to agree on everything, but they did have a sense of wanting to explain and so Jefferson sometimes would discuss political issues and try to explain why he had didn't done the things that he had done. I was going to ask you, did they avoid politics completely? It oh, sounds no. like they didn't. No, no, not at uh, all. These not two guys all. couldn't have. D no, there's no way. But so they how, they, how, they, how they talk about politics in a way that didn't um, bring back old hurts or start new ones? For one thing, they didn't focus exclusively on politics. They covered everything. They covered Plato's Republic. They covered the pronunciation of American English. They covered all of the books that they were reading. They talked about religion. They talked about the nature and purpose of grief. Wow. They talked about their old friends. They talked a lot about their memories of the revolution and what the war had meant in the past and, and how it would affect the world moving forward. So they would touch on controversial issues, but then they would skip on to other things and, and mix in the offensive, hurtful moments with much more friendly and easygoing things, gardening, just whatever else was happening in their lives. Right. 
So in all this correspondence, these, these many, many, many letters, you've already read us a great line from one of them, but do you have any personal favorites? Are there any, I'm thinking of our listeners out there who might want to say, can I get my hands on these letters? Can I read them? I, maybe they didn't even know such things existed, but they just sound like such amazing human beings with such capacious minds and, and big hearts. Yeah. The letters truly are a gift to future generations. Um, they, they really are a treasure. They can be, um, they can be um, an impressive task. I don't want to say an overwhelming task because they cover so many different issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you can read them and just spend a lot of time just delving in and trying to understand their perspectives on all of these different topics. You can find them all um, on, there's a, a website I believe the address is founders.archives.gov, and you can read back and forth. People have been transcribing these letters Mm, of mm. the different founding fathers. You can read them like that. Or there have been a couple of of collections put together by different scholars. So if a person just went online and Googled Adams Jefferson correspondence, they could find a book. They could find a book, absolutely. Um, One of my favorite things that Jefferson and Adams talked about was the history of the American Revolution. So they had a couple of letters back and forth. Adams started this. He he asked Jefferson, who is going to write the history of the American Revolution? Mm. And Jefferson wrote back, no one is really going to be able to write the history of the American Revolution. Jefferson said only the, in his words, external facts could ever be recorded because in Congress... All of the discussions and all of council sessions, they all happened behind closed doors. And there was nobody taking careful, detailed notes. Um, And so Jefferson said, these careful, detailed notes, which are the life and soul of history, must forever be unknown. Hmm. And uh, at the time, there was an Italian uh, author who had just written a history of the American Revolution and he dealt with this problem by just making up speeches and uh-huh. inventing them and putting words into the mouths <laughs> of Very old-fashioned history. <laughs> That's exactly Jefferson's observation, very much like what the ancient historians used to do. Um, but that was impossible uh, as an accurate history of the American Revolution. Um, and so he also, Jefferson mentioned to Adams, hey, by the way, People have started noticing that you and I are writing letters back and forth to one another, and a a publisher has approached me about maybe printing our correspondence. And Jefferson said Jefferson did not want to do this. He said, you know, those people, they think they have a right to everything, no matter how sacred or secret. And Adams wrote Mm. back, and he said, first he replied to this part about the revolution, the history of the revolution. Here's what Adams says. As to the history of the revolution... My ideas may be peculiar, perhaps singular. I might be the only one who thinks this way. What do we mean by the revolution? The war? That was no part of the revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. The revolution was in the minds of the people, and this was effected from 1760 to 1775, in the course of 15 years before a drop of blood was drawn at Lexington. And Adam says you should just look at the records of 13 different legislatures, the pamphlets, the newspaper articles. Mm. That's how you could write a history of the revolution. Now, notice what he leaves out there. Of course, the war itself and also 
the Declaration of Independence <laughs> and the process around writing that. Adams Thomas is, Jefferson's document. Right? The thing that now Thomas Jefferson is most famous for, Adams conveniently forgets about that part. But he is saying there is a way to write the history of the revolution because really the revolution happened in the minds of the people rather than solely on the battlefield. And I think Jefferson would probably agree with that. And then Adams went on to say, well, it's no wonder that people are observing that we're talking again because you're so famous. Your hand is more universally known than your face, Adam says to Jefferson, mm. meaning the things that you write are incredibly yeah. famous. Of course, they're going to attract attention. Uh, Adam says, well, no, no one has asked me for copies of our letters, but I'm not surprised that people have asked you. Uh, and he says, well, don't worry, you know, all of your letters have arrived. Nobody's tampered with them. So they didn't directly address in their correspondence at this point whether or not they wanted their letters to be published, but they were really aware of history being mm. written about them, around them, and they knew there was a possibility that their letters would become history. And so when we read their correspondence, we're not just reading two old buddies catching up. We're reading two statesmen very much aware that they they have participated in history and that they have an opportunity to shape how posterity views them through their correspondence. So they thought their letters would still be important to us. Absolutely, yes. As they approach the end of their lives, um, and it gets into the 1820s and toward the mid-1820s, in those final days, were had they reached some agreement, or, or did they still argue? <laughs> I think they agreed about a lot more than what they disagreed. As they grew older, they both mellowed. Adams became more comfortable with the American Republican experiment. He spoke less about needing to go back to a hereditary monarchy. Um, but I think what they, they also melded more together on in their views was they both began to realize that progress needed to happen gradually. So perhaps mm. Adams, in a sense, became more willing to see opportunities for progress, and Jefferson became less of an optimist and began to uh, recognize because of the outcome of the French Revolution and because of, of what he was viewing in other uh, revolutionary countries, like in South America, that change takes time and, uh, and that liberty is something that cannot immediately be given to individuals, that, that it, there sometimes has to be a gradual growth toward it. So that's something interesting to, to view them agreeing uh, for example, here's here's a, a letter from Adams to Jefferson. He says, It's melancholy to contemplate the cruel wars, desolations of countries, and oceans of blood, which must occur before rational principles and rational systems of government can prevail and be established. But as these are inevitable, we must content ourselves with the consolations which you, from sound and sure reason, so clearly suggest. These hopes are as well-founded as our fears of the contrary evils. On the whole, the prospect is cheering. Hmm. So they're both looking at the world around them. They're seeing violence. They're seeing war. They're seeing famine. They're both worried about the future of America. They've been disappointed in some ways, but they also still agree that progress is possible, that the light of liberty and of education can still spread, uh, and they're willing to see some sense of agreement for the, the hopeful prospects of the future of the world. Wow, that sounds, that's very lovely. And it sounds like then, even at the, in the last days, they were still friends. Yes. Remarkably, they never stopped writing. Once they started, they never stopped. And their letters maybe become a little bit more about their ailments. <laughs> uh, Sometimes that happens with older people. Right, right. <laughs> right. Uh, they shared sorrow as the people that they both knew and loved passed away. Mm -hmm. They started to feel like they were some of the only ones left. 
Um, and then at the very end of their lives, the most remarkable thing happened. Uh, another part of Benjamin Rush's dream came true. So Benjamin Rush, in his dream that he had said uh, that the two men had had died uh, not too far apart from one another, that they'd gone down to the grave almost at the same time. Incredibly, these two men passed away on July 4th, 1826, 50 years exactly after the Declaration wow. of Independence, uh, within just a few hours of one another. And in another remarkable coincidence, Jefferson passed away first around noon and then Adams a few hours later. And legend tells us that Adams' last words were, Jefferson survives or Jefferson still lives. Hmm. And in a sense, he was wrong. Jefferson had already passed. But in another sense, he was right. Jefferson's reputation still mm. survived, and it still in some ways outshines Adams to this day. Jefferson's legacy survives in a more prominent way, perhaps, than Adams's does. Very powerful, very moving to, to imagine that. What do you think that we can learn today from this amazing relationship? I learned two things from it. On a personal level, Reading about Adams and Jefferson and reading their letters to one another teaches me that it's possible to be friends with your political enemy, hmm. that it is possible to learn how to explain yourself to somebody else, that it's possible to focus on clarity over agreement and to still maintain an affection for somebody and a love for somebody even when you don't agree on all of their views, and even when perhaps they've said nasty things about you in the past and you've, you've had a, a nasty political division, that it's possible to maintain your genuine affection for that person as a human being and as a friend. Wow, that's a very important lesson for today, for sure. Absolutely. And the fact that these two men were at the heart of such a divisive political moment in American history and that they were able to reconcile makes me feel like it must be possible for individuals now. But the second lesson, I think, is that as leaders, as statesmen, Jefferson and Adams had to make a conscious decision to remember their love for one another and their mutual um, principles, their mutual strivings and sufferings and sacrifices that they had made in that revolutionary time on behalf of the nation. They chose to put the country first when they reconciled. They chose to focus on what held them together, what principles were essential to them both. And they knew that in doing so, they were giving a good example and teaching a good lesson to posterity. And that explaining themselves in their letters wasn't just important for their friendship, but for our understanding of that revolutionary time, our understanding of the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. Um, and the, the fact that they were able to find so much in common at the end, I think, also teaches us that the things that seem to be incredibly divisive, the things that seem to be a gulf between us in the heat of a political moment might actually not be that bad, might actually not be as far apart from one another as what we think we are, that we might have more in common. Mm. And if we can calm ourselves and have has the, the aid of time, we can reach more agreements and compromises than we think we can. Not as important as our shared American principles. Yes. Our shared American principles are, are perhaps deeper than we think that they are in the heat of the moment. Well, that is a beautiful and hopeful story. Carr Rogers, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice, 
Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash AmericanIdeaPod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AMIdeaPodcast. From the Schramm Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sikinka.